of the Old Testament, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, Malachi, the prophet. As I say, just as a brief interlude in our study, uh, along with 2nd and 3rd John, 2nd and 3rd John, Malachi, then back to Leviticus, where we'll have, as we had in the second part of Exodus, a very, very heavy emphasis on the ceremonial law. Hear now the word of God, Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord, yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated? And laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see and you shall say the Lord is magnified beyond the borders of Israel. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this word through the prophet Malachi. And we ask you that just as you called the church to hear the burden which you had placed upon his heart, that we might together uh, with them hear that word and even be burdened by it as well. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin this new study, I want to just introduce uh, the man Malachi, his audience and his message very briefly. And then we'll look at this initial admonition to the church in those days. The first question which we have is, who is Malachi? And the simple answer is that we do not know. If you read the commentators, uh, there are guesses, uh, but nobody knows. We know that he was Malachi, my messenger, that is the messenger of the Lord. Beyond that, what can we say? It is clear that his ministry coincided with the return of Israel to the land after the Babylonian exile when the temple was restored. He was most likely a prophet who was contemporary with Ezra and Nehemiah. And this has led some, such as John Calvin, uh, to speculate that Malachi was actually Ezra himself, which is possible, but how can we know? Another clue uh, as to his identity, at least the time of his ministry and his his preaching, is that he ministered uh, not only in the time when the religion and the worship of the temple was restored in Israel, but uh, that this occurred in a time of religious decline. And this explains uh, the the burden of his message, is one of reproof and rebuke, especially we see to the priests. Uh, So he was... He was rebuking a state of spiritual decline that ought to, ought to have been a period of spiritual revival. Only it wasn't. But the last thing I would say about him is that he was the last of the Old Testament prophets until the Christ should come. After his ministry, there was a prolonged period of silence among the prophets until John the Baptist arose. There's a voice crying in the wilderness. The question then, uh, which we ask is in the second place, is who was his audience? And the answer is it was Israel. Israel as she had returned to the land. Israel as she had experienced and witnessed the restoration of the temple and the ministry of the priesthood there. 
But Israel, as I just said, and as you'll notice in the book, this explains everything we have. Israel, in a state of religious decline, which was evident once more in the state of her religious leaders. The church is in decay because the leaders are in decay. And the sins of the priests, we find, rather than teaching and uh, true religion and restoring that to Israel, were only leading Israel into further religious decline. At, at a time, uh, as I just said, that the life of the church should have, if anything, been marked by religious revival, not religious decline. And so he ministered to Israel after the temple was rebuilt and the priestly ministry resumed. And this is what explains his message. Look at what it is called here at the beginning of the book, and I've entitled the sermon by the same words, The Burden of the Word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. And so like Jeremiah before him, the word of the Lord was like a burden which was placed upon Malachi's heart and which he must bear before the people. And in some sense, it was a burden which he could not bear unless he preached it like Jeremiah. The burden in particular was the sins of the people, which in a sense was a burden to the Lord and thus to his messenger. It was a burden of rebuke and reproach. This is something that we see in the ministry of nearly all the prophets, if not all the prophets. I can't think of a single exception, but perhaps you can. And that is how the prophets dealt with the sin of the people. Not with smiles, which is the mark of the, of the false prophet, but with frowns. You always see the prophets doing this. There is always a note of rebuke and reproof. You see the next prophet that God raises up after Malachi doing the very same thing. The voice of one crying in the wilderness is a voice of rebuke to wayward Israel. And then Christ after him. The same thing. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And woe to you scribes and Pharisees and so on and so forth. It's the same note in the prophets before. Such as Malachi. When God sent his prophets to Israel, it was not for commendation but for rebuke. The pronouncements, as we later find in the life of Christ, of woes for her sin and rebellion. For she was ever a rebellious people. The whole of the Old Testament is a testimony to that. And so this was the burden of Jeremiah. It was the sins of the people. Especially, as I said, in a state of religious decline with respect to worship itself. That is where it was most evident. And that was a burden to Malachi that he must then preach to them and it, you might say place the burden upon them for them to bear. Let them bear the burden of their sin. Let them be burdened by it. In that sense, you see, the message was not so much for the prophet, but for the people. It was a burden to them. Again, so that they might feel the weight of their sin and ultimately one would hope to repent of their sin. Do you realize we see this again in the prophets and it's so clear that God's word is often like a burden. That's how it's presented to us in scripture. Especially in the preaching. It becomes a burden to us like a burden and especially through the preaching in seasons of sin. How burdensome God's word seems to us when we are rebelling against it. And yet going along the lines of the ministry and the preaching of Malachi, let us not 
even today, seek to lighten this burden by deceiving ourselves that we are better than we are. Let us rather allow ourselves to be burdened by the word of God and to hear what it is that he is against his churches. See also in this the faithfulness of the prophets who delivered timely the difficult messages. Again, what marked off the true prophet from the false was that he did not say peace, peace when there was no peace. That's what the false prophets were saying. But the true prophets, the true messengers of God were saying there is no peace in Jerusalem, not when sin is reigning. Not when my people are given to idolatry. So often God calls his ministers to give timely messages such as these, like his prophets, to be the bearers of bad news. For the preaching, you may remember, as Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, is for convincing, rebuking, and exhorting wayward sinners, calling them to return uh, to the Lord. And again, let us not, in the hearing of the preaching of God's word, be afraid or unwilling to bear this burden. For by this holy means, God is reclaiming a wayward and an ungrateful people to himself. That is what he was doing in Malachi's day, and that's what he's doing still today. And let us learn what it means as well to see God's word as a burden, which we must bear. And we cannot, as God's people, ever put off. Not if we would be his people. And yet, seeing at the same time, as Christ teaches us in another place, that his burden, though it must be taken, if we would be his disciples, is light and easy by comparison to the burden, the heavy burden of sin. Come unto me, Jesus says, and I will give you rest, for my burden is easy and gentle. But at the same time, we could see the burden in another light, looking again at the message and the burden of Malachi like this, going into chapters 3 and 4, which have uh, plenty of rebuke as well. But we notice at the same time how hopeful this message becomes. And this is something as well that we find in all of the prophets. There was always something prophetic in that sense, uh, a looking forward to something which is ultimately hopeful. And which stirred up hope in the hearts of the faithful. Especially the message of Malachi when he looks forward to the coming of the Christ and his forerunner. This becomes a prominent part of his message. And it is fitting that it would be given the fact that he was the last of the prophets until the Christ should come. And this too we can see and are able to detect in his preaching was a burden which weighed upon him. And which we as his hearers must share. We see in all the prophets a looking forward to the coming of Christ and in all of their preaching telling Israel to do the same. Look to his coming. See what God is about to do in the coming days. And yet at the same time, and again you get the sense of the way in which this was a burden. At the same time, who can endure the day of his coming? Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom he speaks will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, uh, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire, like a launderer's soap. The coming of the Christ and his forerunner, Malachi says, and as we see, certainly for Israel would be a calamitous event. It would ultimately, very shortly after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, spell the end of Israel as a nation and the destruction of this very temple that they were worshipping at that time, the second temple. 
And yet with that, the realization that the, the prophets looked forward to, that the hope of the prophets, namely, not simply the coming of the Christ, but the birth of the church and a new covenant. And who among the godly in Israel could not look forward to that without fear and trembling? And yet with joyful anticipation and be burdened as the prophets were. Here indeed was the burden of the Lord found among the prophets in the old covenant. Malachi being the last. A message they must preach until the promised forerunner should come. The first instance or the first accusation that we see, having seen what the burden was, in a general sense, he begins a series of rebukes in verse 2. And we're looking only at the first of these. Verses 2 through 5. They were, they were rebuked, the people, of the sin of ingratitude. Which was a burden to the Lord. It was a burden to his heart, for he had loved them. Yet they said, in what way have you loved us? And so... The ingratitude of the people became a burden to Malachi. And must he must, through the preaching, make it a burden to them. If only they might feel the weight of their own ingratitude and the sinfulness of it. But first, you see, before the rebuke comes, God simply says the first word, I have loved you, says the Lord. Yes, and was that not enough? And was it not evident in the case of Israel? Read the whole of the Old Testament, and this is something that comes through with spectacular clarity. The love, the distinguishing love of God in the case of Israel. And yet they said, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Here we are at the end of the long history of the Old Testament, and that's the testimony of the Old Covenant saints. What are you talking about? How can you honestly say, Lord, that you have loved us as though to demand proof of that which they denied, namely that God really did love them? And yet God, in his mercy, does not hesitate to provide proofs of his love. And so he points to his distinguishing love in the instance of Isaac's two sons, Jacob and Esau. One I have loved and the other I have hated, says the Lord. And what does that prove? That it is God's nature and his prerogative as God to love whomever he loves. Yes, and his distinguishing love for Israel was evident. It was evident in the history, the long history of Israel. Even the recent history of Israel and the sons of Jacob and the sons of Esau. For both of them had recently been overthrown as a nation by the Babylonians and yet one of them was restored and one of them wasn't. The sons of Jacob in Israel were experiencing a wonderful restoration. The sons of Esau and Edom were experiencing a humiliating and frustrating defeat. Israel was repaired while the walls of Edom lay in ruin. And try as they might, they could not rebuild them. The Lord would frustrate their plans again and again. And in this, the Lord was manifesting that he was against one, but he loved another. And how clear that ought to have been. How clear in Israel's restoration, the love, the distinguishing love of God appeared in the life of Israel. It was the same old lesson of Jacob and Esau, God is saying, being worked out in history in real time. His love for Jacob was seen in his sons. Likewise, his indignation 
For Esau and later Edom was manifest in how God spoiled their efforts at continuing and at rebuilding. That is in essence what you have in verses 2 through 5. But let me try to apply that as uh, my own burden and message to you. And let me notice here, first, that this is the first sin which is mentioned. There are so many sins we will find Malachi upbraiding the church for. But this comes first. But is there any sin so unworthy of the saints and that of ingratitude? Look, God says, I have loved you. Here is the fount of the covenant in which we stand. Not that we were lovely, but that God in his rich mercy willed to love us. That is the continual testimony of scripture. That is the only reason there even is a people of God. And so the burden really begins like this. That before anything else is said, God's people would know that God had loved them. But here is the chief sin. It is not that we failed to love God in return and obey God. It is rather that we deny that he ever loved us. That is the sin of ingratitude. And that is the height of folly, Malachi is saying. You think in the context of the New Covenant, of what Paul says in Romans, his cardinal assertion about the Gospel, the primary thing that the Gospel proves beyond all doubt about God. It is just a testimony of precisely what Malachi says here. The burden and the testimony of the Lord. I have loved you. I have loved you in a way that is unquestionable and that is impossible to miss. It's likewise the the burden of the Apostle John and of all the Apostles that in Christ God loved us. For God so loved the world. You know how the line goes. And what both men are saying, John and Paul and the other writers of the New Testament, is who could doubt that now? Who could possibly doubt that now that God has even gone to the lengths of delivering his own son for our sins and raising him up for our justification? And so the leading assertion of the New Testament is not that we loved God or even that we ought to have loved God, but that God loved us. And likewise, the cardinal sin we could ever commit is not that we should fail to love him in return, but that we should deny, as Israel did here, that he ever loved us. Do you see what an affront that is to God's loving heart? But when did you ever love us, Lord? In what way have you loved us? But how quick we are to deny he has, even today. Matthew Henry God's people need to be often reminded of his love to them. And why is this? It is because too often we're like Israel here, asking this dreadful question. In what way have you loved us? Do you realize that every instance of ingratitude amounts to this? In essence, it is an accusation of God that he is unloving. It is in essence saying what Israel said here. In what way have you loved us, Lord? It looks at God and considers all that he has done To demonstrate the great love with which he has loved us. And it says, what have you done? Really? Is there any greater crime than this? The crime of ingratitude. Do you see its utter sinfulness? Not only in the old covenant where God's distinguishing love was so apparent. But especially now. In a new covenant. Where God's love has appeared in the most glorious and undeniable way. 
And yet, are we grateful? Truly, do we live out our lives in a state of continual thanksgiving and praise for the great things he has done and the great love with which he has loved us? Oh, I tell you, Paul says, a man will hardly die for his friends but an enemy. You can't honestly expect me to believe that any man would do that. And yet here is what God has done for us. He has befriended us when we were his enemies. He died for us when we were yet enemies. When we had no interest in him, our Savior bled and died that we might be saved. That we might, in other words, know the love of God in him, which is the most precious gift of all. To behold in Christ and his wounds the love of the Father and of the Son. Do you see the sinfulness of ingratitude in light of that? I have loved you. I have loved the church God has said. And yet we would call God our enemy. And we would call his love into question whenever providence might cross us. Or perhaps is Israel here. Whenever he would call us to repent of sins we would rather not repent of. We would rather keep on committing. When have you loved us, Lord? Well, I do not doubt this is the chief sin of all, the sin of ingratitude. And it is, let us also note, the fount of apostasy, or from which it springs. Be warned off it. Be burdened by it, by your grumblings and ingratitude. Do not begin to say, as Israel did, in what way has he loved us, when it is so clear and so obvious. Do not ever accuse God, even by implication, of having an unloving heart or unloving disposition to the church. But at the same time, that is the cardinal sin that the prophet is warning the church off. We also can see, in a positive fashion, that we really ought to love God in return, even though that isn't the primary burden of his initial message. At the same time, we can see that is obviously the counterpart of what of what we are saying, of what I am saying. That the positive counterpart to a mortified ingratitude is love, love to God. For the man who is conscious of God's love, who sees it and does not deny it, and is burdened that any should do so in the church, this is a man who loves God. And what is more, he sees in God's love something that amazes him, namely a free gift. Which is only to say he is conscious of the grace by which God's love has been manifested. For to see in God's love his distinguishing mercies is to see at the same time those whom he hates. And thus to realize he does not love all. That is something else that the prophet is reminding Israel of here. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. There are some, yes, whom God hates. Even as we consider... And we wonder that we should ever be recipients of his love. There are some not only whom the Lord hates, but those whom he has purposed to destroy like Esau and his sons. History is full of such examples. Not only biblical history, but you can go even broader than that. If you think of the wicked today. And in every age there are fearful warnings of their doom that awaits them for their sin. And yet here is the amazing thing that we are meant to realize. That if I am conscious of God's love, if I am able to see it, so that I find that I love God in return, that is because he has chosen to love me by his free grace. I am what I am by the grace of God. 
And I am only able to love him because he has loved me first and chosen me as a recipient of his love. And yet I cannot understand it. Why was it me? Why was it not I who perished along with the sons of Edom? Why was I counted among the sons of Jacob, the beloved? How easily I realize God might have hated me for my sin. And yet in his grace and in his love, he was pleased to love me. And seeing this, the nature of God's love, how can I not love him in return? You see, that's the positive counterpart to a mortified ingratitude. How can I not love him in return? And likewise, seeing this is the leading assertion. You see it not only in gratitude is the cardinal sin, but this is the fount of all piety and godliness. And it is well that Malachi should begin here. Not only with words that explain all other sins, but also which indicate the path of true repentance out of a recognition and a wonder at God's love that we might love God in return. Let us see the love of God and let us love the God who loved us, though he might not have, though he might have hated us. Let us, in other words, see that God is glorified in the salvation of his people. Verse five. But my last word has to do with the doctrine of election itself, which we've been considering. Do you see this is a matter ultimately of praise and wonder? God is saying, Malachi is saying. Again, we see the truth of election and reprobation in the opposite cases of Israel and Edom and their fates. Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated, and so their sons. One God has prospered, one God has restored, the other God has purpose to crush. And he will not fail of his purposes. And yet we can say and we can see, does God's glory not appear to us in both? His love, but yes, also his hatred of the wicked. One man falls by his sins, the other is made to stand by his grace. Yes, again, let us learn to add this word distinguishing to God's love, his distinguishing love. That is what the prophet is marveling at here. Not just that God had loved Israel, but that he had chosen to love Israel even as he hated Edom. His love is that which distinguishes one from another for reasons found only in his secret will. Why should God love Israel and hate Edom? Only that in Israel he might manifest the glory of his grace. And it is the same with the church today. What God is doing is manifesting the greatness of his grace in us. All to the praise of his glory. As Paul says, the glory of his grace, I should say. All to the praise of the glory of his grace. Ephesians chapter 1, he says that three times. Just as in the overthrow and the judgment of the wicked, he is manifesting the greatness of his justice. To the praise of his glory. And it is on this very point. That Paul later uh, picks up and seizes upon in Romans chapter 9. Let me read here a lengthy section. uh, But you'll see here a very similar point being made. Chapter 9 verse 6 of the book of Romans through verse 19. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in your in Isaac, your seed shall be called. That is 
those who are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise at this time I will come to Sarah. I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by her father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. You notice the very incident we've been considering. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. That's a quotation of Genesis 25. As it is written, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I've hated. There is your quotation from Malachi. God was distinguishing one from another. Not all the sons of Isaac, but one and not another. And that same principle continued to work itself out in the whole history of the life of Israel. What shall we say then, Paul says, is there any unrighteousness with God? Certainly not, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and on whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me, why then does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? Uh, I said verse 19, I meant verse 21. But indeed, O man... Who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Paul is saying what Malachi is saying and what we saw in Genesis as well. That election and salvation is a matter of God's will. It's not a matter of he who wills or runs, but of he who calls. He who distinguishes one from another. That's what God has been doing all along. And it is he who loves, though he might have hated all. That's the greatest wonder of all. And who are we to find fault that he should love any out of the sinful mass of humanity? We are not in a position, Paul is saying, to contend with his will or to question it. Yet that was the trouble with Israel all the way back in Malachi's day. They were still questioning God. They were still calling him to account. In what way have you loved us, Lord? But Paul here says that is always wrong. His ways are not to be questioned. They are to be adored. They are a matter of praise always. And thus, he says later on, as he concludes the great argument that he makes with regard to God's purposes for Israel in chapters 9 through 11 of Romans, You know it well. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. That's what Israel ought to have been saying in those days. They ought to have wondered that election distinguished her that she might enjoy the favor of God even as another was hated. And so I would notice the pastoral implications for the church of this doctrine of election which our confession says is not to be shied away from though handled with due pastoral care. And that is what we find in Paul and that is what we find in Malachi. Certainly not a shying away from it but a preaching of it to the church pastorally. Every bit as much as the doctrine of God's love. 
Here is a point which constrains obedience in the church, as well as reverence and awe. And here, too, is a doctrine which binds our hearts more closely to his. For here we find him, as Calvin says, to be the sole author of our salvation. It is not, again, a matter of he who wills or runs, but of he who calls. And so we see in this doctrine, the love of God appears to us more clearly and more gloriously, constraining us in return to love and obey. And this is a burden Malachi is saying that we would do well to carry and to not throw off, namely, a sure knowledge of the love of God and his distinguishing mercies. Here is a burden that God's saints are glad to bear and to carry. And yet at the same time, it becomes for us, as with Malachi, a burden to us when we see the very people whom God has loved begin to question it and to query, where has God loved us? Where might it be found? It is found in his distinguishing mercies. It is found in the evident ways in which he has favored the church. It is found most of all in the cross. This indeed is the burden of the word of the Lord which came to Malachi and which comes to us now. And then if we should carry it with him as Malachi closes, then your eyes shall see and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the borders of Israel. And to him be all praise, glory and honor. Amen. And let us stand together and sing to God's praise hymn number 535.